KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzet Torah. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Vav Nisan, Erev Shabbat Kodesh Parshat Metzorah. And no, it is not a special Shabbat for the first time in a very long time. And the Erev Shabbat program is Lilui Nishmat Shlomo Yosef Ben Chaim Shmuel. And I am your host, Jonathan Snowbell. Pesach just around the corner. It's hard uh, not to give uh, some substantial <coughs> attention to Pesach, and perhaps in Pesach specifically, more before Pesach than even during Pesach. How so? If we think about the holiday of Pesach, and specifically in contrast to the holiday of Sukkot, we find a very interesting phenomenon. Now Pesach is seven days and Sukkot is seven days. Sukkot with an extra eighth day, Shemini Atzeret, which is an independent holiday, which is now is not the time to discuss that, but we'll work off the assumption that we're comparing two seven-day holidays. The seven-day holiday of Sukkot is a seven-day holiday of Sukkot. Every day looks similar to the day before, a slight variation on the first day. Um, we sit in the sukkah, arba minim, halal shalim, and if we look into the mikdash, different korbanot each day. If I'm to formulate it in an extreme manner, Pesach ends at worst sometime in the night of the first night <coughs> of Pesach, and at best sometime in the morning of the first day. To what am I referring? Pesach seems to be a mitzvah-packed holiday, but everything is brought into a very small time period. We have the mitzvah of eating matzah and koran Pesach and maror and sipur at Mitzrayim. And all of that is on the first night. And maybe perhaps we can extend the significance of the first day till the morning of the first day where we say the only Halal Shalom, for those of us living in Eretz Yisrael, the only Halal Shalom of the whole holiday. After that, no mitzvah to eat matzah, no Halal Shalom. The korban that we were makriv on the first day is the same korban we were makriv the rest of the days. And we have a Yom Tov at the end again. And... We try to extend this to some observance of Shvi Pesach as remembering uh, Kriyat Yamsuf, the splitting of the, of the Red Sea. But essentially, as I said, Pesach is over the first day. What then remains <coughs> the remaining six and a half days? Uh, six days, six and a half days is the Isur of Chametz, the prohibition of Chametz. And in that sense, it's incumbent upon us to then look at this time that remains between now and Pesach, because between now and Pesach, we are essentially setting the stage for those seven days. We are cleaning our house, removing the Chametz, kashering our kitchens, our kitchens, kashering our utensils, buying food that is kosher Pesach, 
finishing food that's not kosher Pesach. What we do now impacts the entire holiday of Chag HaMatzot. Because Chag HaMatzot of the seven days is seven days of prohibition with one extremely packed night of actual mitzvot and the rest of the time a prohibition. And that's the Chag of Chag HaMatzot. And this makes us reflect on time which is not given or seemingly not given any active role. In Sukkot it's easiest to try to figure out what to do. We bench lulav and we daven halal shalom and we have korbanot and we have simchat beta shoiva and then and with, and with, when, when nothing else there is to do we sit in the sukkah and we were mekayim mitzvah by sitting in the sukkah. I think the next logical step then within this discussion is to discuss the concept of chirut, because that is the concept of Pesach. And perhaps this is the ultimate chirut. Here we go. We got out of Mitzrayim on the first day. The first day was a busy day when we got out of Mitzrayim. Now we're getting, in the night we have Korban Pesach and we're getting ready to go and we're getting our, we're tightening our belts and we're putting our shoes on. And in the first day, we leave Mitzrayim. All right, so we're finished. We're out of Mitzrayim on the 15th day of Nisan. The whole significance of Yitzhak Mitzrayim is over. We've left Mitzrayim. Okay, we have to get in Torah and we have to get in Territ Yisrael, but those are later events in any case and they're not marked on Pesach. So therefore, Pesach is over historically also on that first day of Pesach, on Tedvav Nisan. And perhaps that's the Torah's message that, Chirut, uh, you're free. You don't have to do anything. We're not going to bog you down with mitzvot like we did, uh, like we do on Sukkot. Pesach is Chirut. You don't have to do any mitzvot. You're off the hook. Ha'omnam. Is that truly so? Again, I'm coming back to those days before Pesach. Here in the state of Israel, as of this Friday, today, Vav Nisan, the schools are closed. All the kindergartens and all the elementary schools and all the high schools, saving those high schools who participated in the strike earlier this year, the teacher strike, who have to make up a few days. But on a regular year, everybody's off here for a week before Pesach. Now, when I was growing up in Toronto, we had Erev Pesach off, and then Pesach. That was it. We were off Erev Pesach. Till the day before Erev Pesach, we were in school. Now, this was great for the mothers. No kids running around in their feet when they're trying to clean up for Pesach, when they're trying to go shopping. They're in school, they're in their regular program, nothing to worry about. They're home Erev Pesach. By Erev Pesach, everything has to be done in any case. We're burning the chametz in the morning, the house is clean, we're eating kosher Pesach already that day. Here in Israel, we have this challenge of trying to deal with the children at the house for a week. So, what are the what are the reasons for this? So, we can all say, "Wow, in Toronto, the teachers were in real trouble because if they're a female teacher and a male teacher, or one of the two, if both of them are working, if it's a female teacher, which is often the case in elementary schools, so she can't clean the house for Pesach. How's she going to clean the house for Pesach? She's in work until the day before Pesach. But in Israel." 
the mothers who are teachers get off a week before Pesach, and there they can clean the house before Pesach. Okay, but what about the kids? So, (coughs) inevitably, someone else is filling in the gap with a business initiative, whether it's this program or that program, trying to entertain the kids during this week. All right, if they're in a program, great. What do you do with your teenagers? Your teenagers, well, the the go get them teenagers, or perhaps they're the ones who are running the camps for the week before Pesach. And what about the rest? Oh, now we got to take and entertain the teenagers, take them out here, there. What do we do? What happens to Pesach cleaning? And then somebody says, hold on a second. The teenagers? Tell the teenagers to pull pull up their sleeves and get to work and clean and wash and check out the pockets and clean out their cupboards. Teenagers are no different than anybody else in the house. Teenagers are soldiers. They can help out for the Pesach cleaning. And then we dawn upon the question about, and this is something that I'm reflecting on as being an educator of teenagers now, <clears throat> for several, for a few years, I won't say several yet. And that is, what then is the motivation of the teenager? Because if I mentioned the first possibility first of entertaining the teenagers before the possibility of the teenagers helping, then something's wrong here. A situation, a condition, a reality, in which people feel that they can't tell their teenagers to help them, the teenagers won't be helping them. And then, an even more interesting reality, that we we pander to our teenagers, we take care of our teenagers, we give our teenagers cell phones and money, and then we're very upset about how they're turning out. They're not interested in power learning and keeping mitzvot, being a fruitful member of society. And then, when we take it one step further, then we're dealing with depressed teenagers. The same teenagers who are growing up in houses where very few demands are made at them. They have many, many benefits from growing up in the house that they grew up in. Cell phones, computers, iPods, whatever it is they want, having fun, money, and they're depressed. What better chirut is that? Here, if our, our model of chirut is Pesach, because there's no mitzvot after the first day, then uh, our teenagers today, as soon as they're out of the... You know, the the school and being out of school can happen in one of two ways. You could be on school break or you could be in school and not take school seriously. And then you have chirut. And chirut, look at this chirut. No obligations, all the benefits. En lecha chirut gadol So what are they depressed about? And if I say that sentence again, 
the statement of Chazal that rings in my ears is, "Ein lecha ben chorim elamisho sek b'torah." There is no ben chorim, except for one, who is studying immersed in Torah. It sounds like a cop out. The Jew who's committed to Torah and mitzvot is a hard-working Jew. Besides the regular obligations as a human being to support his family, take care of his wife, take care of his children, financially, emotionally, he has to go to shul, he has to learn Torah, he has to keep commandments, he has to give tzedakah, he has a lot of things on his plate. He or she, pardon the choice of he, it's just a convention. Where is the Ben Chorin? How is he a Ben Chorin? How many Jews wake up in the morning and say, I just wish I didn't have to go to davening in the morning so I could just start my day an hour later like everybody else does, get an extra hour of sleep, just eat my breakfast when I wake up in the morning, not wait an hour after I get home and maybe not even have time for breakfast now. Let's not try to give an answer, but let's try to describe the answer. Let's all try to take the idea that we're presenting here and think about it for another week or more. The human being needs a program, needs to be committed to something, needs to be perhaps, if we say it extremely, enslaved to something. When we are enslaved to something of value, we feel fulfilled, we feel good about ourselves. When we are helping others, when we are doing productive things, we feel fulfilled. And the person who is fulfilled is the person who is a Ben Chorin. The person who has nothing to do, the person who is enslaved then to themselves, into making themselves happy, is constantly trying to fill their time with making themselves happy. Besides the fact that this is a very difficult task, because how do you do that for such a long time? Every day, 24 hours a day. What do I do to make myself happy right now? Besides the fact that it's a difficult task, it's an endless task. Because in a, a similar context, even if not specifically this, but I think it's true here, must be Omar Ivo, a person who's constantly filling themselves with satisfying themselves is constantly making themselves hungry. And the person who is constantly running after money could be making more money if they put more things together and so they can go after that more and then not be satisfied with the million five they make a year. And the person who's looking for the next latest gimmick and the most exciting thing to do and the, and the most advanced iPod and the most and the coolest computer games and the best music eventually gets tiring and it's empty. And you're not satisfying yourself. 
and you're not a Ben Chorin, because a Ben Chorin is a happy person, is a satisfied person. And this person is not satisfied, and this person is not fulfilled, and then this person is depressed. And that same person, their whole life revolves around satisfying themselves, making themselves happy, having blinders on where it comes to everybody else, that person is depressed. But, and here, <coughs> giving a broad interpretation of Misha Osek Torah, anyone who's committed to something of value, whether it's learning, whether it's giving to others, whether it's taking care of others, whether it's being committed to something important, and a job can also be something important, if we're committed to it for the right reasons, and then we're fulfilled because we're doing something useful. And we're working our tails off. And the other person is sitting with their earphones and their iPods and their computers and not doing anything. And they're sitting in a cloud of emptiness and depression. And they're not Ben Chorin. And the person who's Osek Batorah and Osek in something that is meaningful and is working very, 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 very hard is Ein Lecha Bein Chorin Elamisha Osek Batorah. And on that note, we've gone a little bit over time here, we will now listen to the enlightening words of Rav Tavori. This week, on Tet Nisan, is the yard site of the person who is known as the Tzaddik of Yerushalayim, the Tzaddik in our time, Rabbi Levin. I feel an interesting personal connection with the yard site of Rabbi Levin. For a few years, I lived in Pardes Chana, where I taught in a yeshiva high school. The Rav of Pardes Chana at that time, was Harav Chaim Yaakov Levine, the son of Rabbi Levine. On the day that he had Yartzeit, on Tet Nisan, that one year when I was there, I understood that they were driving to Yerushalayim, and I wanted to go along with them. I didn't have a car, and I asked if I could join them in the car. That why I also had the pleasure and the privilege of sitting with Rav Levine for a few hours. When he took me to Yerushalayim, on the way back, he said he'll pick us up. His son, David, drove the car. And he said he'll pick us up and drive us back to Paris Chana. I then realized I could do my shopping easier in Yerushalayim, where I had the advantage of having a car ride. And I bought a lot of preparations, I bought a lot of things for Pesach. The next year, before the Yartzeit, Rabbi Levine called me up and said to me, I have Yartzeit this week. When I have Yartzeit, I already begin to smell the smell of the fish and the smell of the food that you brought in the car last year, so can we do it again this year? This is a 
typical act of simply thinking about other people, worrying about other people, which so was a sign of the family of Rabaye, his parents, his children, grandchildren. At one point in the car, Rav Chaim Yaakov Levine asked me, did you know my father? And when I said that I never saw him, I never met him, he looked at me with such a sad look, and he said, oh, I'm so sorry for you. Like, he really understood that anybody who met Rabbi Levine, anybody who felt his handshake, already felt a spiritual elevation just by seeing him, by saying hello to him, by shaking hands with him. People told me how when he used to shake your hand, he never held your hand with one hand. He always shook your hand and sort of stroked it with the other hand. And they say they felt a jolt of electricity going through their hand when Rabbi shook their hand. It's told that someone offered to buy him a pair of gloves. After all, he walked in the cold of Yushalayim and gloves were appropriate in the winter time. And he said, no, he doesn't want the gloves because how could he extend his hand to people if he's wearing gloves? You have to feel the hand of the person and therefore you shouldn't wear gloves at all. In the book, Ishtadikaya, and other books that were written about Rabbi Levine, they mention that the young ladies who he cared for so much when they were prisoners, when they were in sad situations in Yerushalayim, only felt the regret that Rabbi Levine would not shake their hand. He shook the hand of the, of the prisoners, and apparently they really experienced something when they shook his hand, and this was missing for the young ladies for whom Rabbi would not shake, shake their hand. A little bit of the biography of Rabbi is well known, as I mentioned, the book Ish Tzadikaya, translated into English at Tzadik in our time, is, I think, required reading for people to understand what a real Tzadik is. Someone commented about Rabbi Levine that I can't really believe he's one of the 36 Tzadikim, one of the Lamed Vavnikim, because that would somehow imply that there are 35 people in the world that are like him. And he just seems like one of a kind. It doesn't seem that anybody could match his Tzadikis. He was born in the month of Nisan, in Poland in 1885, in a place near Bialystok. His family was poor. His father, Rabbi Yamin Bainish, was known as a person who learned, a person who was very, very dedicated to public work. People were always guests at their house, even though they had very little of their own. But the Tzitkus apparently has been seen in this generation, for gener- in this family for generations. Growing up, Rabbi Levine learned as other children in Poland in the Cheder, and eventually wound up in the Yeshiva of Slutsk where Rabbi Zalman was the Rosh Yeshiva. There was a small yeshiva. The beginning of it was a small group of students, the yeshiva of Slutsk. Rabbi Zalman later on renewed his relationship with, with Rabbi Levine in Yerushalayim, of course, years later. It seems that Rabbi Zalman did not really, really remember Rabbi Aryeh stay in Slutsk. And apparently he was so tsanua, he was so modest, that he just what didn't make himself well known. 
He stayed in poor conditions in Slutsk. He did not have a benefit of having a hotel room, a dormitory room. He just sat and learned and more or less slept in the base medrash or wherever he could find a place. It, it seems that years later, Rabbi Zalman actually asked him to be mochel him, to forgive him for the lack of attention that he got. But it seems that he was just so modest, so tzanua, that people really did not realize who he was. It was in years later that people really understood at least a little bit who this man was, and he was recognized as, as a tzaddik. Now, to be a tzaddik is one thing, but to be recognized as a tzaddik, that everybody knows you're a tzaddik, is something else completely. It's obviously such unbelievable behavior that you come to the attention of the world. What was not brought to the attention of the world, of the world is that he was a lamdin as well. The story is told about another great gadol who was known as a famous tzaddik, but he was not known as a major Tamad Chacham. But indeed, he was a Tamad Chacham. So people say that he was, the reason he was not known as a Tamad Chacham is because he recognized his own capability in learning, and therefore he prayed to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that he not be famous in the world of Torah. He wanted to keep a low profile, to be modest, and therefore he said, I do not want to be known as a Tamad Chacham. And since Ritzon Yerei of Yaseh, since HaKadosh Baruch Hu fulfills the wishes of those that, that truly fear him, this wish apparently was answered, and he was not known as a big Tamad Chacham. But then the question obviously arises, so if he really was so modest and didn't want to be known as a Tamad Chacham, and that was kept, why was he known as a Tzaddik? Why didn't the same person, Davin, that he should not be known as a Tzaddik? And the answer was given that he never really thought he was a tzaddik. A person that can be aware of your own intellectual acumen and realize that what you've accomplished in Gemara and learning in Torah and therefore pray that you not be known for it, but it would, this person just thought that his behavior is not extraordinary. It's, this is what every normal person should do. And therefore he did not daven that he should not be known as a tzaddik. A statement like this could be applied to a Bari Levine certainly. He did everything in such simplicity and such modesty that he didn't realize that people really considered him such a, a, a tzaddik. In 1905, Rabbi went on Aliyah to Eretz Yisrael, and there he married the sister-in-law of Rabbi Pesach Frank, who became the Rav of Yerushalayim. He received smicha, Rabbi Levine received smicha from Rav Kook, from Rabbi Shmuel Salanter, Chaim Berlin, apparently his prowess in learning was certainly known by them. The poverty in Eretz Israel at that time was great. His personal poverty certainly was lived with him the, his entire life. And for a brief trip, he went to Chutzlaretz to see if he could somehow pull himself out of this situation. But he did not stay long in Chutzaretz. He was, went through Paris to London. And in 1917, we find him in Eretz Yisrael, <coughs> where he became the Mashgiach of Eitz Chaim, of children Eitz Chaim. He was the Mashgiach of people that really loved him. And he loved them. He dealt with his children 
day in and day out. And the love that he felt for them just was automatically reciprocated and felt by everyone. Being known as his reputation began to spread as a major tzaddik when the British had imprisoned the people who were at that time considered terrorists or the people who fought to have a free state of Israel were put in prison, Rabbi Levine was chosen as the person who would have official rights to visit them. And he was known as the Rav HaAsirim. He did this all the time. Shabbos and Yantif, he went to the, walked to the prisons and he became known as Rav HaAsirim, but he did it without remuneration at all. The condition was that he would not be repaid. Again, a story that I heard from his son, Chaim Yaakov Levine, is very illustrative to me in that respect. One year, I came to Rav Levine after Rosh Hashanah, between Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, and I asked him where he davened. Rabbi Levine had a beautiful voice, besides many other talents, and he very often <coughs> davened for the Amud in the shul, in the main shul of Padis And I asked him where he davened Rosh Hashanah. So he told me the first day he davened in the shul, in the main Bet Knesset of Padis And the second day he walked to Machanesh Monim, to the army base, which is a little distance away from Padis from his home. I asked him, why did you go to Machanesh Monim for, for Rosh Hashanah? And he told me that Erev Rosh Hashanah, a group of fellows came to see him in Padis and told Rav Levine that there were a number of Hezdernikim, a number of yeshiva men, who would be in Machanesh Monim for Rosh Hashanah, and they asked if the rabbi would come there and daven with him. And his response was, Nachshav I'll think about it. He told me when he said, he meant that there's not a chance in the world that he's going to go. He thinks it should be a good idea, but it's a long walk and he's not going to go. The first day of Rosh Hashanah, he davened in shul, and in between the first day and the second day, that night he slept, went to sleep, and his father appeared to him in a dream. And his father said to him, why didn't you go to, to the Machanesh Monim? Why didn't you go with the soldiers? And Rav Levine answered his father and said, it's a long distance, it's a big walk. His father said, but I also took big walks. I took long walks. And I always did it. Why shouldn't you do it? So the son, Rav Chaim Yaakov, answered, which meant, my legs are not so dexterous, I'm, I have problems walking, and it's too far for me to walk. So Rabbi's answer was, I also had difficult, difficulties walking, but it never stopped me from going. Rav Chaim Yaakov said that he answered, okay, maybe you had shverafis, but you had a very big heart, and your big heart could carry your feet. The father's answer was, if you don't have a heart like that, I never want to speak to you again. And that was the end of the dream. Rav Levine said the next morning he woke up and ran to Machanesh Monim. The family consideration for Tzitkis, 
the feelings of what the father wanted from the son, from the relationship they had, can be so illustrated by such a, a simple story. When Rav Levine was known, Rabari Levine was known as such a tzaddik, so we see a few incidents in his life where people turned to him because he was known as the tzaddik Vishalayim. In 1948, the year of the establishment of the State of Israel, the year of the fall of Gush Etzion, when those 35 soldiers, well, not actual soldiers, but students, came to help rescue the, the Gush, and they were massacred, so they didn't know how to bury them. And they turned to Rabbi Levine, who did a mystical idea that I really don't understand, called Goral Hagra, the lottery of the Vilnagon, to determine which body belonged in which grave. That also shows how people automatically recognized him for his tzitkis and his extraordinary talents. For years, he was the he was the baltfila of Merkaz Harav. He was chosen to be the baltfila and the yeshiva of Merkaz. Stories about Rabbi Levine are so many. Anybody who wishes to can read that book that I mentioned or other books. There's just one story, perhaps, that I'd like to recount. It's one of my favorites. Rabbi used to love all his children and he called the people who he dealt with, the prisoners, the fighters, he called them his children. One day, years later, one of these young ladies went to Rabbi Levine and said to him she's getting married and she'd like him to come to the chasana. And he explained that he was old and infirm and it was difficult for him to come to the chasana. She was very disappointed. And she looked, obviously, so hurt. So Rabbi tried to make her feel better and said, please don't misunderstand. My own grandchildren can get married today and I won't be able to go because I don't, I'm not well. She said, Rabbi, if that's the cause, then you have to come to my wedding. Maybe to your grandchildren you can't come, but you said we're your children. To your children you will come. And according to the story, he did come. Rabbi Levine's stories, again, are so unbelievable. There's so many stories that we should try a little bit to emulate the ways of Rabbi, at least read about what he, who he was and some of the tzidkus. But don't forget, he was also a Tamit Chacham. His yard site is Tet Nisan. He died in 1969. Yehezichro Baruch. Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. Ein lecha ben chorin elamisho sek Torah, and we go back to Chagamatzot, and Chagamatzot is nothing, just an isur of chametz. Chagamatzot is a void, and the void is telling us if you want to be a ben chorin, you better start filling it up with content. It's a challenge, Chagamatzot. The challenge to be a Ben Chorin. We are given the opportunity to be B'nai Chorin as of the first day of Pesach. And perhaps the first day of Pesach is hinting to us the way of being a Ben Chorin. The first day of Pesach is filled with mitzvot. Fill your life with mitzvot. Fill your life with value. Fill your life with something substantial. And then after that first day, empty. Yisr Chametz. You're not allowed to have chametz. Everything else, figure out what to do. 
you fill your life with value, with substance, you will be a Ben Chorin. If you act like the first day, the day which is full of substance. Don't do that. Leave it empty. Just leave it a Chag with no mitzvot. Leave those that week before Pesach doing nothing, not helping, making those seven days before Pesach chofesh, and not hard work. Very, very soon, your life will be full of a vacuum, a void, and ultimately depression. Ein lecha ben chorim elamisha osek Torah. Only the person who fills their life with substance will feel fulfilled. And being fulfilled is the Ben Chorin. Shabbat Shalom.